Good morning, you may be seated. I'm Jana. I'm the associate pastor here, and I wanna welcome you, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. We're glad you're with us this morning, worshiping the living God. So I have a question for you. Have you ever lost track of time? Have you ever lost track of time? About eight years ago, I was teaching high school part-time, and I would go in for my classes and then go home, and I had just had my second daughter, so she was about six weeks old at the time. And I remember about a month, month and a half in, I was sitting on the couch breastfeeding my baby, and I had this feeling, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, I think I'm forgetting something. And I looked up at the clock, and it was 11.55, and my class started at 11.48. So I very quickly passed my baby over to John, called the school. Turns out it was the day of my first exam. So I asked someone, please just pass out the exam for me, and I will be there as soon as I can. And I threw on some clothes, and I rushed out the door. I arrived close to the end of the class and enough time to collect the exams. And after I picked up all the exams and dismissed the class, I noticed out of the corner of my eye something on my shirt. And it turns out that it was a tag. And then I looked around and I realized that my shirt was on inside out. And it turns out that it's actually very hard to be prepared if you lose track of time. You might have noticed that our scripture readings this morning are quite alarming, calling us to pay attention to the time. And so we might ask ourselves this morning, what time is it? What time is it? And it turns out that there are a lot of different ways to tell time. You and I typically tell time by the movement of the sun, 24 hours a day, 365 days in the year, or by seasons, summer, fall, winter, and spring. But some time is oriented around an event, like the death of our mother, or the birth of a child, or a move, or a disaster. And then some time is oriented around activities, like the soccer season or a dance recital. But what time is it? And the church has a very particular way of telling time. Our time is oriented around the person of Jesus Christ. And our year, the Christian year, begins in three weeks in a season we call Advent. And Advent refers to the coming of Christ. First, in his first coming at his birth in the incarnation, but primarily his second coming when he will come again to make the whole world right. And so over the next several weeks leading up to this season of Advent, you will notice that our scripture readings on Sunday begin to call us into that reality. Christ will come again. 
And these texts are inviting us to consider, what time is it? What time is it that we live in? And as we approach Advent, I want to remind us that we are a people who are waiting. And it's not a make-believe waiting, not climbing back into the Old Testament and pretending that Christ has not come. The waiting of Advent is a real waiting, an expectancy of an event in the future that has not yet come. And so our Christian year begins by recalling both the beginning and the ending. Christ has come and Christ will come again. And we recall this each week in the creed. We stand together and say he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We recall it in the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now I know, as well as you, that the second coming of Jesus is not a very popular topic for preaching. And this bizarre end of the world imagery in much of the Bible is unsettling to many of us. And we might be tempted to dismiss or explain these texts away. But if we do, we will have omitted the primary event towards which the early Christian hope was aimed. Throughout the history of the church since the days of the apostle, the second coming of Christ has been our fundamental hope. Not merely that Christ came, but that he will come again, and when he comes again, he will wipe every tear from every eye, and he will make every path straight. But if you think about these things at all, you might have noticed that Christ has been coming back for a long time now, so long that people have given up on him. Jesus' disciples surely thought he would return in their lifetime, and their followers thought the same, and generation after generation after generation, people have thought, surely Christ will come now, and at the turn of every millennia, and at every global crisis, the end of the world is upon us. And some of us have grown fearful or anxious with this end of the world talk, but I think many of us are skeptical or just indifferent. We don't think about it at all. We just go about living our lives. What time is it? And this apocalyptic literature that we find in scripture, although it might be foreign to your and my modern imagination, it's actually not intended to incite fear or skepticism. It's intended to inspire hope. And this is how it was received by Jesus' followers throughout history, and this is the invitation for us. That even though the whole cosmos is crumbling, and it is, there is no denying that violence and suffering and scarcity is around every single corner. But in the face of that reality, of our reality, 
the church with faithful confidence and long endurance has been saying for centuries, God is coming. And when he comes, all the world will be made right. What time is it? And so as we approach this Advent season, we remember that we are a people who are waiting for Christ to come. And our gospel readings over the next several weeks will call our attention to this reality. And not only that Christ is coming, but also how are we to live as people who are in between, in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. How are we to live in this time? What does waiting look like for us? Not just in Advent, but for the whole of our lives until Christ comes again. Our gospel reading this morning is found in Matthew. And we heard the second in a series of five parables about the end of time. And we're going to be going through these parables over the next three weeks as we prepare to enter Advent. We're going to get ready to get ready. And so today we heard the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And next week we'll hear the parable of the talents. And then finally the last judgment or the parable of the sheep and the goats. And so our text opens this morning with this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. And so we start with a future statement, naming what is to come. So the parable that follows is uncovering some reality about the kingdom that is in the future. It will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamp and went out to meet the bridegroom. And all the bridesmaids in this parable know that the bridegroom is coming. And they all have lamps. They all have intention of greeting him when he comes. And then we are given a description of these ten bridesmaids. Five of them were foolish. And five of them were wise. And Matthew here is drawing on Jewish wisdom literature in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Who personify wisdom and folly. Lady Wisdom we hear in the Proverbs, and Lady Folly. And wisdom and folly actually throughout the scriptures over and over again are described as paths. And that to head down one path is to head in the opposite direction of the other path. And as you move towards wisdom, foolishness decreases. And as you move towards foolishness, wisdom decreases. And so I want to name here that foolishness and wisdom aren't one-off actions, their patterns of life, their ways of being, living in the world that are either consistent with the kingdom of heaven or not. And then the parable goes on to name how the foolish and wise live in the world. And we might ask ourselves, what does wisdom and foolishness look like in our lives, especially as we consider the time in which we live the psalmist says, teach us to number our days so that we might grow in wisdom. And there is a connection between growing in wisdom and knowing what time 
it is. So the text goes on to say that the foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed. And all of them became drowsy and slept. And I want to note here that the bridesmaids are distinctive not because they were ready for the groom. All the bridesmaids were ready for the groom. And they're not distinctive because they did not fall asleep. All of the bridesmaids fell asleep. They were all ready with lamps. They all had the intention of receiving the, gro the, brides the groom. And they all fell asleep at his delay. So what separates the wise from the foolish? What separates the wise bridesmaids is that they were ready, not for the groom, but for the groom's delay. To bring an extra flask of oil is to signal that they were prepared for the bridegroom whenever he might arrive, early or late. The timing of the bridegroom did not, it didn't matter when he came, they were ready to receive him. If he had arrived on time, actually, as he was predicted to arrive, everybody would have been ready to receive him and all danced into the banquet. But the bridegroom like the kingdom of heaven, did not arrive promptly. He was and is delayed. And some 2,000 years later, the kingdom is delayed. And the wise ones are those who are prepared for that delay, who hold on to the faith deep into the night. And even though they see no bridegroom on the horizon, they still serve and hope and pray and wait for the promised victory of God. What time is it? And finally, at midnight, there was a shout, look, he's here, he's here. And the bridesmaids all got up to trim their lamps so they could go to meet him. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. And the wise replied, we cannot, or there will be not enough for you and for us, you have to go buy some for yourselves. There is something quite poignant about this section in the parable, that readiness to receive the bridegroom, whatever form that readiness might take, is not something that can be achieved at the last minute. It's not something that just a quick fix will do. It's not something you can count on your neighbor to lend you. Wisdom and foolishness are ways of life that shape us into certain kinds of people, capable of doing certain kinds of things and living in certain kinds of ways. And you will notice that in this parable and actually all of the similar parables, like the day or the hour of Christ's coming is not the focal point at all. We're not to be people obsessed about like when the end of the world is here and making predictions about what that will be like. What we are called to do is to faithfully pattern our lives in such a way that it doesn't matter when the bridegroom is coming. 
because we have ordered our life towards the kingdom. We are already participating in the life that the bridegroom is bringing about. We are ready. Our lives are ready. We are doing the work of taking an extra flask of oil, the work of small step by step orienting our lives towards wisdom and teaching our children the ways of wisdom. And while the foolish bridesmaids were out getting oil for their lamps, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him into the wedding feast and the door was shut. And later the foolish bridesmaids came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And his response here is shocking and sobering. He doesn't say we've already started and we're so glad you're here. We're glad you came. He says, I don't know you. What a response. Like an unpredicted, like if we just gave this story, what would we say the bridegroom would say? What an unexpected response. I don't know you. I don't recognize that your life is consistent with the kingdom of heaven. And in case you're wondering and hoping if I'm going to make this feel somehow less alarming, I'm not. I don't know how. This is an alarming parable. And it is the word of God for the people of God today. Both of these things are true. We receive a sobering word today from the gospel. A call to live as people who are wise. Do we really believe that the bridegroom is coming? I have been sitting with this question all week, like am I saying this creed with integrity? Do we believe that the bridegroom is coming? And I don't just mean coming to individual hearts, but as we heard in Thessalonians, like coming to call the entire universe into judgment, coming to bring history to a close, coming to bring his everlasting kingdom to pass. This is what the New Testament sets before us today and in the weeks to come. Not a private, individual, spiritual coming of Christ in our hearts, but a cosmic event that will be visible to everyone. This is the claim that the church has been making for 2,000 years. And this is our hope. What time is it? Amen.